Brits and Cures with Lindy Burns, lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Dr Steve Allen. Yeah, they're back. How nice to have them back. Bill O'Shea is a Melbourne lawyer. Hello, Bill. Welcome home. Thanks, Lindy. You were looking after your grandchildren. Yeah, and could I recommend Big Daddy's Diner on um, 19th and Park? Are we talking talking New York? It would have to be the worst meal I've ever had. I had uh, what are called border dogs. We don't care. Do you know what border dogs are? We don't care. (laughs) Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm well, Lindy. How are you? And you welcome home. What meal would you like to not recommend (laughs) wherever you've been? I went to the Byron Bay Blues Festival (laughs) and the food there was excellent. I bet it's all vegetarian. (laughs) It pretty much was. Oh, of course it was. Uh, yes, you're back just in time for Law Week, so I don't know how you've managed to let this happen, Stephen, but the whole show is Ritz. I know. I'm just, I don't even know why I came in. I really just, I really just come so in. So you can bag, bag the lawyers. Yeah, normally which, let's face it, is my favourite pastime, so it's quite good for me. Yeah, the whole show is Ritz. Uh, tonight, as I was mentioning, our special guest in around half an hour is His Honour Peter Cousins, who's the chair of the Adult Parole Board. We've got him back about a year after the last time he was on, just to see if anything's changed after we had um, lots of deep and probing conversations about the way the parole board was um, was operating. But it is Law Week. So first up, I'd like to introduce Jo Kirby, who's the Executive Director of the Victoria Law Foundation, a role that she's held since 2008. She has a strong commitment to making the law more understandable to us and to improve legal literacy. She's spoken at a couple of conferences, both nationally and internationally, and in 2010 was awarded a Churchill Fellowship to investigate best practice in community legal education. So we need to check out what's going on with Law Week and what the Foundation's involvement is. Jo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to see you. Law Week's purpose is what? That's really to help Victorians understand the legal system so that they can participate in in it better than they can at the moment. How do you work out which bits of it we don't understand? Well, look, most people do nothing when they have a legal problem for lots of reasons because they can't identify that they have one. And so it's not like there's one area that needs particular attention. It all does. And a lot of it is about breaking down barriers, making people realise that lawyers can help them, judges are real people, go behind the scenes, not feel intimidated. How can, how hard is it to convince those judges and others that this is all a very good thing to do and can you just unwind a bit and yeah, make they're, these they're, connections? They're doing a barbecue. How do you convince judges to host a barbecue? Are they wearing your robes at the barbecue? Tell me they are. They're wearing pe- purple aprons. Oh, that's <laughs> not quite. With the wigs? Never no wigs. wigs. No, no wigs. It's no shattering. No. So back to my question. How, mm. Is it hard to convince people that who are in the business that, you know, this is in the trade, this is what they should be doing? Well, look, we've been doing it for 38 years. Okay. And Maybe not. Every, well, look, I think you still have to convince people sometimes, but there's a great willingness, and I think it's got a lot easier over 38 years, to say, open the doors, be prepared to ask questions. I mean, you know... Probably when I started in at the foundation, it was really hard to get judges to answer questions. And now they're really willing to answer questions and put themselves out there and be put on the spot. So, And that really builds trust with the community. So it's fantastic. Answer so whose questions? Members of the public who oh. come along to events. So Saturday this week, we've got Courts Open Day. We've got lots of events happening across all the courts. Uh, we've got mock trials. People can go in and talk to judges. And that, I think, makes a big difference to see them in a... I mean, unfortunately, lots of people come into the law when they've got a legal problem. It's very high conflict and stress. So this is trying to make it a little bit more fun. Are you convinced, Stephen? 
Um, you, know, I, you know what I'm doing while it's here? I'm thinking about... Something else. Well, I was. I was thinking about the public's perception of lawyers. That's what I was thinking about because yeah. I was thinking Law Week for me is about a couple of things. One, there's a whole lot of fantastic events. Like I was scanning through and like there's a tour of all the murders in Carlton and all the crimes in Chinatown and stuff like that. So I love that sort of stuff. Um, and the public's fascinated by law and mm. I, I am too. But yet... By the same token, you know, for every time you mention a lawyer, you get a, a lawyer joke and yeah. people, and you know, like you were saying, you know, I always, I can't resist, um, you know, making fun of the legal profession on this very show. Um, and so I was, you know what I was just doing? I was Googling public's perception of lawyers and trust and where they rank, you know, those oh, research studies. Oh, yeah, against nurses and doctors, I suppose. No, no, well, nurses always rank right up the top. There was right. in the top five Seriously, doctors. I'm sitting here as a radio yeah. broadcaster, we're like... Bottom. No, no, no. no. I think no. Radio You're above lawyers. Yeah, 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 everyone's above lawyers. Are we? Everyone. Yeah. Oh, maybe not real estate salesmen. Mm. They're always down the bottom. But lawyers are always in the bottom third along with politicians and used car salesmen. That, that, you know, I mean, they're not right down the bottom. And I think it's bizarre. And that's one, one of the reasons I think, you know, Law Week, you know, like any profession, there's good and bad. And I think Law Week needs to some, somehow address that. So this is the longest-winded question ever. <laughs> Does Law Week address the public's perception of lawyers? We try to. We definitely try to. I mean, you know, it's hard because you get people coming along who just think they're trying to be ripped off by lawyers. And that's clearly, from what, where I'm sitting, it's not the case. But I think being able to talk to a lawyer in a non-conflict situation or talk to a judge really helps to change that perception and also to, you know, come along to a musical event where you've got lawyers being normal people or, or what we perceive as no- normal. Um, I think it does. Uh, but family, family, people involved in the family court have a view that they don't get very far before getting a massive bill. And it's an expensive process. Is it only in the family court? Well, they particularly, think that? there's a lot of feeling that um, uh, uh, you know, people I speak to about because that's often their only exposure to the court system. They're mm. not they're not the criminal mm. justice system, right. and they mm. might have bought a house, which mm. is a fixed fee pr- pr- process. But those sort of things, you know, they they feel that um, they don't know how to minimise their legal spend. Like with with health, we go to Steve and Medicare pays three quarters of what mm. Steve's going to charge me, but not when you go to a lawyer. There's no insurance. So. The, the thing with medicine too, because I think there's just as many problems in medicine, but the thing is at least you've got the alternative of the public system yeah. if you can't afford the now, private that's system. that's my point. There is a Whereas, public system, isn't there, in law that law we can help to identify, you know, community legal centres – Free legal resources, yeah, your website, for example. And even things like Consumer Affairs Victoria. I mean, the biggest legal issue that people face are consumer-related issues. Consumer Affairs Victoria does a fantastic job that, at kind of representing people in that area. VCAT offers, you know, self-represented jurisdictions. But, you know, conflict is expensive. The cheapest way to deal with a legal problem is trying to negotiate a settlement and, and use alternative dispute resolution. So... I mean, the problem with, you know, people in conflict, they don't, they're angry, they've got various things driving them, and that can really add to the cost. And it's a very complicated area. But I do think that if you do engage a lawyer, they are most interested in resolving things in the most cost-effective way possible. But that doesn't mean it's not expensive. I reckon there's, that. that's, I think the law week aim for the next 10 years should be to try and convince people that that's what the truth is. Mm. 
I'm sure that is true. But I've got a text, for example, that says this. Why is it that lawyers are probably the only industry that will charge you for the time it takes them to prepare your invoice as if they're not getting enough from you in the first place? It's very sad. That's from Jeff, I think, articulating what a lot of people believe. But at the same time, there's lots of lawyers who do a lot of work for free, who work in community legal sectors or centres or work for, say, Victoria Legal Aid, and they really don't get paid a lot. And they do a lot on their own time. Today's pro bono um, law day and there's a lot of lawyers that do stuff for free and it's not recognised. That's not to say there's not a lot of people charging outrageous fees, but it's only one small part of the profession. And those are those particular services means tested to, to a point? Do you have to, you have to be at a certain point of disadvantage in order to access them? Uh, some are and some aren't. Community legal centres often focus on people within their local community. So it just depends... Um, on the particular issue and whether you can access those resources. And also I think um, the community ought to be more prepared to take lawyers on who charge for preparing an invoice. Yeah. I mean, I, I just had a, a, a case. We did a, I did a pro bono matter where we briefed a QC uh, a couple of months ago. And we end up with a – and it's no win, no fee. And, of course, the client always thinks, that, oh, well, you know, it'll be fine. But you always tell them on day one, if you don't win, you've got to pay the other side's costs. Because you mightn't pay our costs, but you'll have to pay the other sides, and so that's no win, no. It's no, no win, no, no fee. fee doesn't. Yeah. It's not no win, no cost. It's just no fee. Correct. For your law. You don't. You don't. You don't. Your own lawyer doesn't charge you, but you still got to pay the. And and the fees on the other side were of that ilk. You know that uh, just to just to tell me uh, to give me a breakdown of the table of the costs that was to charge. You know that sort of stuff. You've got to be prepared to take them on. And there's a legal services commissioner who will listen to those complaints about costs. That's one of their areas. Of, that's why they're there. That's why they, they, they're paid out of the public purpose fund to, to look after consumers who think that the bill's unfair. And you take it to the Legal Services Commission and say, sort this out. What's this it called? The Legal Services Commission. Commissioner. Yeah, Commissioner. Legal Services Commissioner in Victoria. And, my, um, uh, and you know, just uh, do it and, and be prepared to take them on. And I think too many people are intimidated by by mm. them, um, mm. and, and and are not prepared to do it, and you know, getting a fee estimate in advance. If you don't get a fee estimate in advance, you don't have to pay the bill, mm. or you can you can basically you know put the lawyer right on the back foot. I, th- um, I think there's an element of you know m- me going to a mechanic in all of this, which is I I feel completely out of my depth. I feel as though they're going to take advantage of me, mm. even still in this day and age. That you know, if they say to me we need to change the carburetor that I have no leg to stand on to say, well, why and how much is the carburetor going to cost? And if they say it's $5,000, I I go, well – what are they normally? Like, you know, I, I have, mm. I'm, yeah, but I've had numerous conversations with a thousand people over the years, and I still can't have that conversation. Mm. And I think people feel the same way about lawyers. No, no the lawyers are worse than that. Lawyers don't say it's five thousand dollars. They say it's a thousand dollars an hour, and I can't tell you how many hours. Yeah. It's even worse. I'm just so and, disappointed. And while we run, while we run with hourly billing, the legal profession will end up like a dinosaur if it doesn't stop hourly billing. It's the only profession in the country that's just batting to say in law week. But anyway, it's the only profession <laughs> in the nice. country <laughs> that they can't tell you the cost of your carburetor. I'm losing yeah. my status as the main criticizer of law on the show. <laughs> hey, but um, do you think though part of the problem is the increase in complexity? Because I've seen this in the health system too. We well, just got client. so. But it's... ours is like you guys. There are so many different bodies acting in the field. Like in health, now you might have you know various allied health workers: the psychologist, the social worker, the um, physician, the surgeon. The you know all these different people, and it's such a maze that you. 
it confuses everyone. And the same thing happens in law. There are so many different processes now. Um, and I, I just think we have to somehow come up with um, – use modern technology to somehow smooth this over. Like, for example, fixing those silly billing systems. You know, we have to have come up with better ways of billing. We have to come up with better ways of telling people what to expect. We have to teach people how to navigate the system, which is obviously what Law Week's <laughs> all about. But, you know, yeah, we come have to along and you'll – be yeah, yeah. Well, we do have to do a better job. You know, I was asking you just before how many people study law, law at school these days, legal studies. You know, it's about 8,000 students. Mm. You know, that that's fantastic. You know, in my day, I didn't even, I don't think we even had, well, mm. we might No, have we had, had legal studies, but it was seen as you only did that if you were planning on being a lawyer. Right. You know, like it wasn't as if, yeah. hey, this is in everyone's best mm. interest to have a better understanding of how the law works, well, which I think would be. Well, law has got an event for school students this week. Now, on Thursday, there's a, so you want to be a lawyer. Can all come along in law week and hear out. from the profession. Find out. There's some more texts I want to get to. Uh, one from Meg that says, wow, as a lawyer of 16 years, I've never charged for preparation of bills or even seen that. Challenge that with the yeah. lawyer or the legal services board. Go mm. right ahead. Uh, another that says, this is Russ who phoned, saying, is there a watchdog that monitors these fees and can advise on common rates? Is that even available to people? There's not common rates, but the legal services board, you know, you have to have a quote and if you don't get a quote, you don't have to pay. I mean, one just to, talking about some of these points, I think people are very intimidated by lawyers. They don't want to appear foolish. You know, they're held in great high esteem and highly educated. And I do think going back to your point, you really, uh, Bill, you really do need to stand up for lawyers and question them and is that necessary? Or stand up and to them stand as, up as to a them. client. And not feel intimidated and, and be inquiring and ask what you might think are stupid questions but actually might really help you move forward. Because it's happening more, isn't it, in the medical fraternity. People, you know, patients are asking more questions yep. and the whole Dr Google thing mm. probably drives everybody insane in the medical fraternity but at least one good thing out of it is people are coming in mm. a, a bit forearmed and I don't know how much that goes on well, when you're going to get a lawyer. That's what Law Week's all about, yeah. being forearmed. <laughs> being forearmed. <laughs> I'll give you another example. If you get a quote from a lawyer, you should say, well, are you going to charge me for photocopying? Because usually the highest fee earner in the office is the photocopy machine. It always was in my days in private practice. I earned more than any solicitor. And it's out of – you don't do that anymore. Photocopying's nothing. And frankly, if you, get a, if you get a quote, you should say, well, I'm not going to pay for photocopying. That's it. Um, if, uh, you can do my work, and I see the you know I see your alley. And also, by the way, it's a sale of business. You know, it's a milk bar. You know, how many sales of business have you done? Well, what's the what's the global figure for selling a milk bar? Tell me what it is. Don't tell me it's eight hundred bucks an hour for how many hours, because that rewards inefficiency. The more hours you do, the more you get paid. Tell me what it costs to sell a milk bar, and just be a bit more demanding of them. Knock off the photocopying for starters. I mean, just or reading emails. Well, I think the whole idea of demanding to see where that money is going to be spent up up front. That's happening in more and more professions. Actually, Eddie says it is per hour for the carburetor, Lindy. Same as same for a motor mechanic. Uh, so that's interesting that that's come through. Another though that says made a long avoided family law call to a legal to legal aid today. And after the understandable time on hold, I could not have been more impressed with both the advice and the support that was received. Shakespeare was wrong. We only need to kill some of the lawyers. Uh, thank you. That's uh, another yeah, yeah. text. That, yes, that's great, isn't it? It is. From Don it's... that says, no other professions do charge by the hour as well. I'm an engineer and we do it frequently. Fixed legal fees make no sense from a uh. procurement perspective. Why would you want to incentivize them to do, to minimize their effort to make 
that's what fixed fees do. No, well, it's, I totally disagree with that. It, it maximises efficiency. You just if you if you quote for sale, let's say to sell a milk bar, I'll quote you three thousand dollars. If I know really it's only going to cost me two thousand, I can still sell it. I can still market the service. And and because I'm better at it, I'll make more money on it because my competitors will charge three thousand. But because I can do it really well, and I've got uh, good software and blah 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 and good staff, you know, it, it rewards efficiency. Quoting fixed fees, and we've got to move to. If we don't move to, the profession's going to become a dinosaur. Well, we're the only ones left who are trying to do this. And you know, th- anyway, I, I don't want to. That happens to be a hobby horse of mine, but really. <laughs> Law Week's about getting, going and talking to people about these things. Talk about billable hours when you get a chance at Law Week. Go along to the booth in Fed Square and talk to them and about have that it. Conversation. But, can, on your experiences. but on that you know, point, I'm paid hourly in the public hospital, of course. And there's always you know, a massive queue of work to get done before you go home. So your you patients. certainly don't take your time because you're being paid hourly. No, but your You've got to rush to get it done so you can get away on time. Bill individually. No. And also, well, we should talk about regional Victoria too because we there's should lots talk of things happening events. for yeah, all we should week. talk. <laughs> let's talk about the events. Yeah. So let's pick, say, five. What, what do you recommend, Joe? Well, I think Fed Square down at the Hub is a good place to start because there's lots of different information sessions and you can find out what's on. Courts Open Day on Saturday, a whole day of events up at the corner of William and Lonsdale Street. You can go and um, look at the uh, Remand Centre under the County Court, go for tours of the Magistrate and the Supreme Court. Really a lot on. So if you've got a limited time, it's all there. Uh, we've got a mock trial tomorrow by the Victorian Bar and the Law Institute on on Thursday night, um, and there's an event run at the old magistrate's court on um, amusing tales, looking at the funnier side of law, so that's good. And also on Sunday night, we've got habeas corpus singing, which just goes to show that lawyers can do more than just give legal advice. So it's a, a choir made up completely of lawyers. So. Who have been on this program. They have been on this yeah, program. They're great. And, yeah, they're very good. Mm. Oh, that's great. So in, in terms of regional Victoria, how widespread are we going here I haven't seen any of the lists. Oh, but. Denali. We've got the courthouse um, court sessions at Denali. The old courthouses. There's a tour of that. There's a death penalty. Isn't there a death penalty in Benalla? In Benalla, uh, mercy in the death penalty. You can hear Veronica Hakon, who was with the, worked on the Bali Nine cases. Yeah. Talking Justice in Bendigo, which is on Friday and Saturday, which is a really fantastically. Um, really rich event running over two days with some really fantastic speakers that, you know, you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Hey, it's worth noting too that your website for this is great because I've played around with it. It's completely searchable according to area, topic, interest, um, you know, uh, Mm. public displays versus Mm. legal dramas, all Mm. sorts of stuff. And it's all under lawweek.net. Dot .au takes you um, to the shortcut not .com.au which is a national one lawweek.net.au yeah lots of information 160 and events 160 events in fact more than 30 of them in regional victoria mm. and places where that is um it's is being held is Banala, bendigo denali Geelong, Mildura, Myrtleford, Wangaratta, Wodonga, Yarrawonga and uh, across the border into New South Wales. Yeah. So you're encroaching upon the New South Wales uh, law <laughs> foundations. If well, it's exist. complicated regional oh, law. You know, yeah. Border law is complicated. Anyone who practices law in Albury, Wodonga, it's a nightmare. Oh, they you've won't talk know. to each other. Well, you've, got to know, you've got to know state law in both yep. states mm. to know where the person lives before you can give them the advice. Mm. It's quite tricky. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Of course. And the, and same the worst be... place is Mildura because you've got three states. You've got New South Australia, 
Nearly, but yes, yeah, for the people who you mm. would be advising. Mm. Uh, one quick question before we finish this conversation up. I recently heard, guys, that AI is just going to do away with you guys, you know, and taxi drivers. What do you think, Joe? That's some Reg in Bairnsdale. Wait and see, I think. Wait and see. It's a tool for litigation. It'll help. Um, it's already being used to sort documents by relevance without human intervention, but it's not going to do the legal work after that. It, it's a manual task that doesn't require legal skills. And that's what it's doing. And that's good. That's what it should do. And will it be cheaper? Well, one would hope so because you're not paying someone to, you know, look through endless documents in, on discovery. You get a machine to do it. AI has already changed everything that we do completely. I couldn't practice without the computers these days and all the yeah, – we just couldn't. What do you mean without the computers? You, well, without you all the – Couldn't practice well, in know, the first place. That's – I've never really been very good at it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, but everything we do, you know, we search everything. We anyway, it's yeah, so yeah. But it will keep changing. And fifty years it will change. We can't even predict what they'll do. No, fifty no. years of the Law Foundation this year, right? That's great. It is. Mm. Yeah, it's really good. So, Joe, go to the website, which is what lawweek.net.au. Easy. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having it's me. It's very brave of you sitting know, there between oh these two. Goodness me. <laughs> my palms are sweating. Are they? I don't, if we get a bill for later, then we'll know why. Uh, this is Ritz and Cures. Joe Kirby's been, I guess, is the executive director of the Victoria Law Foundation. Law Week goes up until the weekend. Lots of things on. So go to lawweek.net. Net. Net. That's easy. Ritz and Cures. Bill O'Shea is a Melbourne lawyer and Associate Professor Steve Ellen is a psychiatrist and the Director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. This is Ritz and Cures and our special guest tonight is His Honour Peter Cousins who is the Chair of the Adult Parole Board. More, more than 40 years legal experience as a lawyer, including time as a solicitor, then at the bar, specialising in common law, personal injury and family law before being appointed as a magistrate in 90, 1990, not when he was 90, uh, in his 23 years as a magistrate and then regional coordinating magistrate. He sat at every Metropolitan Magistrate's Court and in virtually every country Victorian court. In 2013, he was appointed as a county court judge and president of the Children's Court of Victoria until his compulsory retirement in 2015. But then he was appointed chair of the Adult Parole Board just on two years ago. And prior to his honours appointment, the Victorian Adult Parole Board and the parole system, you may remember, went through an extensive process of reform following the review of the parole system by Ian Callanan, QC. He's back with us after about a year's absence, and it's great to see him again. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lydia. I'm very it's, pleased to be here. It's interesting you're here in Law Week. Yes. Does, does the parole board get involved at all in Law Week, or is that seen as a, as a bit too touchy? <laughs> no, it's not. Um, we became involved for the first time last year, the first time ever. And we did that because we saw it as very important to give the public the opportunity to meeting members of the parole board, seeing the process in before the very eyes, which we do. Um, as Bill has suggested, we will present following a mock hearing of a plea in the magistrate's court. We expect and we hope that the magistrate will sentence an offender, a fictitious person, to a period of imprisonment with a non-parole period. If she doesn't, we'll have to go home. <laughs> that's right, because that's the whole purpose, <laughs> the whole purpose of the event. <laughs> and I hope she's listening. <laughs> um, we will then engage in an exercise which will involve des- deciding upon whether or not the offender should be released on parole. Um, if 
we do make that decision and then we take people on this journey on the part of the offender through the parole process and then beyond that to a situation where he may disappointingly breach his parole and then we'll consider whether or not his parole should be cancelled. And in doing that, we will have members of the board convening two boards, one to decide upon the grant of parole and the other to decide upon cancellation should things turn out as mm -hmm. we, we plan. Mm -hmm. So the public will have the opportunity of actually seeing and meeting seven members of the parole And board. hearing some of their deliberations. Absolutely. And we have a very good fact scenario, which is not uncommon in the courts these days and involves issues and problems that we see on a daily basis. So it's as realistic a way as possible for the public to become better informed and educated about the process. Is there any nervousness amongst those board members to, to have that conversation in, in public? No. Um, if I may say so, we're very proud to be members of the Adult Parole Board. We perform a very, very important part role in the criminal justice system. Absolutely, but a very difficult one. It's very difficult. And a very public one. Often. It is. Um, public in terms of the public learning about worst case scenarios. Yes, that's true. Not about the very good things that are happening. And Law Week does give us the opportunity in the way that I've described to explain in a practical way the impact that the reforms which took place as a result of the Kellnan Review and how they've ensured that public safety has been enhanced and risk posed by parolees have been significantly reduced. Um, at the end of June, we're going to launch our first website, another way in which we hope to inform and educate the public about this very important part of the criminal justice system. Mm, mm. Because when our, we carry out our duties, um, we're not a court, we're not a tribunal, we're an executive body. Our hearings are not conducted publicly. And as you may have read in the papers recently, there are very strict confidentiality provisions in relation to publicity. So there is very little opportunity for the public, other than those who are, of course, applying for parole or having their parole cancelled, um, to, to know and learn about the process. So Law Week is one way we can do it. Um, we go out and speak to community groups and we hope our website will provide an instant way of people being better informed. Can I start with the most basic public question, I reckon? Yes. Which is why even have parole? Why not just have a sentence? Why not just say, oh, your sentence is five years, that's it? What yeah. is the point of having the process of parole? Well, the evidence is very clear that people who are sentenced to a straight sentence and leave prison without any supports, without any supervision, without any monitoring, are far more likely to become recidivists than those who are released on parole. Last year, New South Wales conducted a very, very intense and extensive review of the system, and the conclusion was that prisoners are less likely to return to the system if they're released on parole under a structured and supervised program. Um, one of the problems that I think we're facing at the moment, if I can mention this, um, in Dame Phyllis Frost prison at the moment, half the prison population are remandees. Which means? It means they're on remand. Um, they've been refused awaiting, bail, awaiting, awaiting their matters to be dealt with. Right. Um, many of them go to, to court. They will be sentenced 
um, and for the most part not to any longer period imprisonment. So they're sentenced often to time served. Now what that means effectively is that they will leave prison without any supervision, without any monitoring, without any support other than through some members of their family. These prisoners are very vulnerable. So they will go back into the same circles that That's, they were missing. That is the in. risk. Whereas if people are released on parole, their parole officers and the corrections um, department themselves provide this ongoing support, which is so necessary because to return to the community is a difficult exercise from a prison term. What about that time after they've been on parole and they've had that support, but then, of course, that finishes at some point? It does. It's always going to finish at some point. Why does being on parole sort of lessen that, 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 that transition? or It becomes a transition rather yes. than something that's cold turkey. Well, that's the whole purpose of parole, to provide, to provide some kind of transition. transition into the community for people who have been in prison for for their sentence. Right. It's like anything else. Some people um, are very vulnerable. They're very susceptible to the sorts of issues that may have led to their offending in the past, particularly drug use. Um, and this is a, I mentioned this, I think, on the last occasion when I was here. Um, those people need support to resist the temptation to return to their drug use. Um, and if they do, then they need the oversight of the parole board and corrections to ensure that they warn not to continue with that practice with the ultimate option of returning to custody. Peter, um, can we just briefly talk about the parole officers? Um, if someone's coming up for parole, let's say it's a year yes, to go, yes. and then they'll be eligible for parole, yes, yes. is that when they start to apply, they or do, do they apply a few weeks before? And no. what's the role of the parole officer in that process? Um, <coughs> These days, applications for parole are usually made approximately 12 months out from the earliest eligible release date. To explain that in simple terms, if a prisoner is sentenced to a five-year term of imprisonment with, say, a two-year non-parole period, mm -hmm. the two years is the non-parole period. Right. At the end of that two years, that's the earliest eligible release date. But you could actually apply, even though you no. ostensibly have three years to go. Oh, no, you, you should. And that's what they do. Right. Prisoners apply usually one year from the end of their non-parole okay. period. Okay. Right. And these days, thankfully... Um, and this is a recent initiative from Corrections um, Victoria, which I'm really delighted about. Parole officers are assigned to them at that time. Sorry, I'm While they're be, in prison. I'm a bit confused. So they've been sentenced to five years. With a non-parole Non-parole for two, mm -hmm. which means they serve that period of time. They must serve that time. Without applying for anything. But they, a year before that no. time expires. So at the one-year mark. So at the one-year mark, yep. they can yep. apply for they parole. They can apply. But, yeah, they, but they don't get it till the end no, of no. the two years. And they get a parole officer at the one-year time. Correct. Which I'm assuming you're going to go on to say means that they spend their last year in prison behaving and getting reports and being assessed. Developing a rapport yep. um, with their parole officers, which makes it so much better and easier for them when they actually come back into the community. And who are these parole officers, Peter? What training do they get? And who, what's, I mean, they sound like saints to me, but, I mean, what sort of people become yeah. parole officers? One of the outstanding recommendations of the Kellen Review was the establishment of a specialist parole system. And that's had a significantly beneficial effect on the system, in my opinion. I see them regularly in terms of interviewing parolees in the company of their parole officers. They're a most impressive group of people, many of them young. Um, most of them are tertiary educated, as you can imagine. They're trained in a specialist role 
for the most part, they're extremely committed, enthusiastic. Men and women? Men, mostly women. And do they have more than one prisoner to deal with in their uh, portfolio? Yes, they do, but the numbers are manageable. Right. Prior to Callanan, one of the problems that corrections faced was the fact that corrections officers or parole officers were also dealing with people on community corrections orders. They had a huge workload. And Callanan recommended there be a specialist stream of parole officers. It was an excellent recommendation, and I'm delighted to say Corrections Victoria adopted it. Mm -hmm. And these people are doing a splendid job in assisting people in their transition. So they may say they've applied with that one year to go before the end of the non-parole period. They get assigned a parole officer. So they get parole at the end of those two years. Or do they? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But if they do, if they are given the... The release is not automatic at the end. No, but they, but whenever they do get that release, yes. say it's after three or yes. even four and a half, whatever it might yes. be, do they retain that parole oh. person with them as they go into? The if community? that's possible, if they, if those parole officers remain in, uh, within that corrections right. office, for but example, but they get a parole officer. They do, but yeah, don't you have to do certain things to get parole? As a prisoner? Yes, um, and that depends entirely upon the nature of your index offending. Now, index offending is the offending for which a person is sentenced. In Victoria, there are now two categories of offending. Um, there are what are known as special um, serious violent offenders or sex offenders. Now, serious violent offenders are people whose index offending includes the obvious murder, manslaughter, child homicide, but then the more common crimes, aggravated burglaries, armed robberies, kidnapping, false imprisonment, assaults causing serious injury, threats to kill, threats to inflict serious injury, and there are more. But they are called serious violent offences. So rape isn't in there? They're a sex offence. Oh, okay, that's a yeah. sex offence. So there's a second category of sex offences, and that covers all of the sex offences. Right. Now, where the index offending consists of those matters, a prisoner will, within six weeks of his entry into the prison system, be assessed for risk. If the risk is assessed as moderate to high, that prisoner must undertake offender behaviour programs or sex offender programs if he or she expects to be released on parole. So in those cases, those prisoners must undertake programs. Do we ever get to a point... Sorry, I'm jumping in here. Do we ever get to a point... I can can so hear the care that's been taken and and as you say, the Callanan Review has been extraordinary and some changes have been implemented that you see as being for the for the betterment, not just of the community, but of those who are going through the system yes. itself, which can only be a good thing for, for a broader mm. society. It still goes wrong. Yes. Why? None of us are perfect. Um, some prisoners are more imperfect than the rest of us, and they struggle. Um, Many come from disadvantaged, dysfunctional circumstances. Many have struggled with um, mental illness, intellectual disability, um, drug issues. It's difficult for those people. Do you know only 7% of the male prison population has attained secondary, uh, completed their secondary education? Therefore, it's obvious that at times about 50% of the prison population were unemployed at the time of the index offending. So these are largely people who, and I speak very generally, of course, um, who don't have the sort of advantages that we we have. Yeah. Lindy, when you say um, things still go wrong, you, what you mean is someone on parole 
uh, offends yes. while they're on parole. Yes. Yes. What's happened with that? Because clearly the Jill Maher case was the classic, I'm sure, that triggered Callanan. Yes. And it's very close to a lot of people who work in this building, that case. Um, what's happened since the death of Jill Maher and the reforms of Callanan in terms of reoffending rates? Yes. Have you got stats on that? I do. And in terms of serious violent offences and sex offenders, the amount of reoffending, or at least the rate at which parolees have been found guilty of serious offences, serious violent offences or sex offences, have plummeted. In 2013 and 14, there were 60 people found guilty of serious violent offences or sex offences whilst on parole. In 2014 and 15, it dropped to 22. In 2000, Sorry, that's post-Callanan. Post-Callanan. In 2015-16, it dropped to 13. And in the first 10 months of this year... Believe it or not, it's dropped to four. 90% decline in the number of parolees found guilty of serious violent offences or sex offences following the implementation of the Callanan reform. What's the biggest reason for that? There are a number of reasons. Um, I've already, I think, we've touched sort on, of touched on one. Prisoners are now being better prepared for parole. T- tell us about stop and detain. Yep. Because that's another way that yes. we, that's a tool we didn't have before. Yes, isn't it? that's right. Um, as a result of amendments to the Corrections Act, um, following the Cullinan Review, police now have the power to arrest and detain p- parolees who they suspect are in breach of their conditions of parole or who they reasonably suspect have committed an offence punishable by imprisonment. Now, in terms of the first category... Sorry, why couldn't they have done that pre-Jill Maher? Well, they didn't have the specific power to, to detain do... them. No, they could have arrested them. Um, but keep them for be... a few hours and let them go. Well, if they'd suspected of committing an offence. Yeah. But in terms of breaching conditions, and I'll give you an example if I may, we frequently um, will parole people with conditions that involve a curfew. Mm-hmm. You must not leave your home between the hours of 10pm and, say, 6am. You must not enter in a particular geographical region within the metropolitan area where perhaps the index offending occurred. You must not consume alcohol. Now, if a parolee is found outside his residential premises at, say, 1am in a prohibited area and intoxicated, that's clearly a breach of his conditions and the police are entitled to arrest and detained for up to 12 hours, that person. And in the meantime, inform corrections, who will then inform the adult parole board that a person has been detained. One so of you, you can get a call in the middle of the night? Yes. The parole board, oper- parole board operates effectively 52 weeks of the year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So one of our full-time members would get a call from corrections. He would need or she would need to determine whether or not that person should continue to be detained or cease to be detained. Right. If but it's the, not automatic that after the 12 hours that they go no, free? Um, certainly not. If they're detained, they will go before a full board within 24 hours and the full board will determine whether or not to allow them to continue on parole and therefore release them, vary their parole or cancel their parole. So it's sort of zero tolerance, isn't it? You've never had that before. That wasn't around in Jill Maher's no. tragedy, no, was it? No, it wasn't. No. So we would have had to have waited, well, we did in this instance, for them to commit another serious crime. 
in order to be detained to be arrest, and arrested. arrested that was the and, and then remanded yes yeah. this is a very significant um, yeah it's put, it's put it puts a whole other level it does in, in, in the terms of the police powers they must be pretty happy with that too they are. I'm sure they are. Mm. I haven't asked, but well, I'm sure it takes the whole risk of yes. detaining them away. Exactly. The interesting thing, though, is that in successive years, the number of people being detained for breaches has dropped markedly. It's interesting, isn't it? Fifty percent of the previous year, uh, which is a very positive thing as far as the board is concerned, because it shows the parolees are complying with their conditions. Yeah, there must be reasons for doing. It. I, I, it's probably you know three or four fold, Steve. So. You know, there's been all these improvements. Of course, you know, you know, I want to, I'm still on this perception thing. It's my it's a theme of everything that I'm doing tonight. By the sounds of it, I know. But um, the point, the reason the public are angry about the parole system is because they see it as being soft on crime. They see it as being they conflate it with short sentence with what they see as inadequate sentencing. And when a mistake occurs, they get very upset naturally, and they don't. They don't quite get the. I think it's hard for us as the public to understand the point you make that says yes, we're le- letting people who have committed crimes go early and they're at risk. But in the long run, we're lowering the risk um, of everyone. I get yeah. that, but it seems to me, you know, we've made this stepwise improvement that's always limited by money and funds. There must be more things we can do. I'm getting at. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm really reassured by everything you've told me, but. In five years' time, is someone going to come along and say, now we've introduced X, Y, and Z? I guess what I'm saying is, what more do we need to do? Well, I've got... Um, a, a list as of... long as your arm. <laughs> <laughs> no, too late for this year's state budget. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, as members of um, the government will be horrified when I mention some of these things um, because they'll cost some money. Yeah. But I would like to see another Judy Lazarus transitional centre open. I'm not sure that you understand no, what that is, um, Lindy. It's a facility... Um, just down on the way to Docklands, which allows a very limited number of prisoners to spend up to 12 months, the last 12 months of their sentence, perhaps before they're applying for parole, in an environment which is secure, but from which they're able to go out and do work at, say, the Salvation Army factories and so on, meet with their families, engage in the community, but under a very strict regime. The rate of recidivism for those people is far less than in people who don't have that support. So to call it a transitional centre is absolutely correct. Yep. They transition in a controlled but supportive way and a constructive yeah, way makes sense. from prison. It's so more ex- of that. It's more very that. expensive. Um, the other thing I'd like to see is a power to suspend um, parole, return particularly young people back into the system for therapeutic treatment in terms of any return to drug use for a period of, say, four weeks and then allow them to resume their parole. Um, At the moment, it's got to be cancelled. That is the option. Right. The parole is cancelled. Yes, other than to perhaps warn them. Mm. But I'm very concerned about this. It's a, it's, these people are very vulnerable. Um, they already suffer from significant low self-esteem defeatism can set in if they're set back into the prison system and they have to start the process again. And they don't get credit for the parole? No. The time they've been on parole? If people are breached on parole, um, they they don't get credit for that. What happens is that the period they've been on parole is added to their discharge date. Now, they do have 
Let's say someone's on parole for six months, they breach it, that's and they cancel. That six months goes on to the end of the sentence, right. so extends it out. Yeah. But we do have the discretion to give what's called time to count. So we can bring them back again if the circumstances allow it. Right, but so, we wanted to make something more formal of that, which, which an idea of bringing them back for mm. for, a, for a short period of time in order to regather themselves. I if would you like. really like to do that. That's only if the breach occurs in terms of breaches of conditions, mm. yeah. not if they're reoffending. Reoffending, no. and yeah, just so one f- more before we wrap this up, please, yeah, what's Peter. Your th- what's your third one that you'd like to see implemented? Um, better education, not in terms of formal education, but education to life skills. I'm staggered at the number of people who tell me when they're on parole how they're totally unfamiliar with a cashless society, totally unfamiliar how to work mobile phones and apps and all these other modern things that I'm unfamiliar with, um, confused about CityLink and all those sorts of things and about the use of computers. If you think about this doesn't apply to me, I might say. I'm a dinosaur, but most of us use computers, apps, and all that sort of thing. They have no idea no, about I... these things because for obvious reasons they're not allowed to use them. And they're, but they're also in a situation whereby suddenly you're thrust back into a world where that's just your everyday experience. Exactly. And an expectation exactly. that you become. That can be quite a shock. Yes. You speak to these parolees before they go on parole, don't you? You personally oh, speak to them. Particularly the young ones. You ring them up and talk to them we directly see them on the as video the chair. Link. Yes, I do. Personally, as far as I every can. one of them, um, not every one of them, but those who I see have the potential to return. Peter, there's so much more I want to ask you. I think I said this exactly a year ago, so we'll see you in a few months' time. I'd like to come back. If you wouldn't mind, please, because there's some more questions. Uh, Peter Cousins, our special guest tonight on Rits and Cures. He's the chair of the Victorian Adult Parole Board. An extraordinary job and some real changes taking place, as you've heard, which is is great news indeed. Thank you very much, Bill. Lovely to see you. We'll see you again very soon. Thanks, Lindy. Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Steve Ellen. Thank you, Steve. Cheers, Lindy. I'm expecting next week to be Cures and Cures. Let's hope so. (laughs) Let's hope so. We'll see if that works. Ah, this has been Ritz and Cures.